again listeners and welcome to another episode of the just checking in podcast this podcast as always is brought to you by vent a place where everyone but especially men and boys can open up about the mental health issues break down stigmas and start conversations i'm your host freddie cocker and i'm the founder and editor-in-chief of vent as you may know by now each pod i check in with a very special guest we have an answer about all things mental health as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about if it helps that person with their mental health we'll discuss it My special guest for this episode's pod is Brian Kapuku. I connected with Brian through great friend of Vent, Shane Tellier. Since I launched Shane's pod, Brian has been a big supporter of Vent on social media and has helped Vent reach new audiences, particularly in the black community. I thought what better way to take the conversation further than invite him on to discuss his own journey. Brian works as full-time as a financial affairs officer and is also studying part-time for a graduate diploma in law. This is how our check-in went. Brian, welcome to the Just Checking In pod, mate. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time out of your day to do this. Um, we've had some great conversations in our Twitter DM, so we can finally bring that to the listeners now. First off, how are you and and how are your how is your studying going amongst all the madness we're living in right now? Yeah, I'm all good. I'm all good, thank you. Um, studying, I'm literally in the ebb and flow of revision, so next couple months, um, just putting my head in the books and just revising for the exams in August. But yeah, I'm all good. Excellent. So now we've got that out of the way, shall we get started? The first topic I wanted to start the pod with you, Brian, is your journey in law. Now, why was law something you became interested in? What inspired you to start this journey and how have you navigated it so far? Yeah, so um, I actually studied history for my undergraduate. But um, during my third year and more so my dissertation, um, I was studying like the US civil rights movement. So in my third year of university, um, we got to look at the Supreme Court and, you know, just kind of the development and establishment of the court itself. Um, you know, the judgments that it passed over the 20th century. And in my dissertation, um, I looked at Birmingham, Alabama, 1963, and just more so in terms of the civil rights movement and just how that kind of developed as well. So um, just kind of graduating from uni as well. Um, I've always had like an interest for law, just more so kind of like criminal and family law. But um, it was only until a couple of years ago, I'd say, I considered to do like a master's in law. So I just thought, okay, from then on, kind of focus more on like specialisms so I specialize in criminal justice with human rights and from yeah just literally year after year just growing my passion for law. And going on this journey what objectives have you set yourself for what you want to achieve or eventually practicing you know do you want to become a public prosecutor for example maybe a private defense solicitor perhaps even a judge or have you not thought that far ahead yet? Um, so I'm actually considering to become a barrister so in terms of specialist field um, still kind of keeping my options open but um, I have also considered maybe one day becoming like a judge or like a Lord uh, Chief Justice so I've kind of flirted with the idea of you know that in the kind of long terms but um, I'd say for the next uh, say three to four years uh, focused on becoming a barrister. I think you'll know better than I do Brian the work the UK justice system has to do in regards to the representation of black men and women amongst its workforce as clerks, barristers, solicitors and judges instead of how they've sometimes been portrayed in popular culture and in real life on the other end of the justice system. According to research done by the Solicitor Regulation Authority published in March 2020, just 3% of lawyers working in UK firms are classified as black, 2% are classified as mixed heritage or have other multiple nationalities that form 
part of their heritage with an additional 1% classed as other. Now, within that 3%, there could be an even smaller number of black men specifically. Firstly, are you aware of this lack of representation and, and does it make you even more determined to smash through that ceiling and, and, and make a success of yourself as a law professional? Perhaps does this visible lack of diversity even have an impact upon your mental health? Yeah, so um, yeah, just kind of going throughout my journey. So, you know, coming out of um, undergraduate history um, and then starting my master's as well, it's like every, you know, kind of year or so, you just kind of see the the number of kind of black people just within the class kind of decreasing year after year. And then it's like, even when I've gotten to my graduate diploma in law now, um, it's only me and another black lady on in the class of 12 to 13. So um, in terms of, you know, post qualifications and kind of looking at, um, you know, social mobility and diversity as well, there is, you know, a really lack of representation when you kind of look at, you know, the upper echelon. So black solicitors, black barristers and black judges as well. So it's one of the things where I'm just kind of looking to, like you said, um, kind of smash the narrative and kind of just create like a different perception that even though the journey from the beginning looks quite long and quite daunting, um, you just kind of have to break into you know the different stages and take it year by year and just say to yourself that that's the end goal that you want to achieve but at the same time you need to kind of break it and compartmentalize as well and just you know keep yourself motivated and just keep going on the journey as it comes along. You spoke off air about how you saw a lack of visible black role models in areas like law and business growing up. Now, we've seen stories of black law professionals be portrayed to some degree in popular culture. You know, the first black US Supreme Court justice, Thurgood Marshall, was played by actor Chadwick Boseman in a Hollywood film. We've also seen Michael B. Jordan take on the role of rookie defence lawyer Brian Stevenson in the case of Walter McMillan in 1987. Now, firstly, do you think there's been enough done to tell stories of sort of trailblazing black British lawyers, male or female? And secondly, would you like to see more portrayals of black prosecutors? You know, in more justice-oriented films, prosecutors are sort of portrayed as attack dog characters with no intention other to put what is normally an innocent person on trial in jail. Does this narrative need to change and include black men and women as well? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, in terms of kind of the stories um, regarding like black British lawyers, uh, male or female, um, I do feel a lot more has to be done in terms of just kind of reshaping the narrative. So like you kind of touched upon as well, um, most of our kind of understanding or, you know, how we kind of see, you know, black people in law, um, it's kind of based off, you know, narratives projected in, you know, American media or, you know, American films and whatnot. But in terms of, you know, Britain, um, on myself, like kind of growing up as well, like I didn't really see that many kind of examples or, you know, people I could look, look up to until I started maybe using like LinkedIn or just kind of changing the way I kind of looked at my social media. So I feel like a lot more can be done in that regards in terms of just changing the narratives and just kind of portraying more stories in terms of black British lawyers. Um, in terms of the need for it to change, um, I do feel like it's a tough one because I feel like when it comes to this kind of studying law, the journey is long. And, you know, it's one of those ones where unless you as an individual are motivated enough to kind of say, OK, this is a long journey I'm embarking on. But at the same time, you know, you're not always going to have the big examples that you want to want to look up to or you're not always going to have, you know, the mentors or kind of people that are kind of looking at you and kind of saying, OK, like this is how I've done or progressed on my journey. Um, let me give back to you. So it's a case of just saying to yourself that, OK, you're kind of creating the narrative for yourself and hopefully in the future, um, you know, given the rise of technology and, you know, social media developments, we can see more kind of narratives and kind of more examples of black men and black women, you know, becoming, you know, successful black solicitors, black barristers and also, you know, black judges in the future. In three areas of society, Brian, there are certainly not for lack of black male role models. 
and female role models, you know, music, elite sport and entertainment. Now, firstly, from your experience, why have those three professions been one that ones that black people have achieved success in and, and aspire to join? And secondly, what mental pressure or environment does that create for young black kids growing up that they largely might only see people like them in those areas of life? Now, does that affect who they aspire to be? And, and did it affect you? Yeah, so um, yeah, in terms of yeah, music, sport and entertainment, um, when we touch upon like music, you always see like, you know, a lot of diversity in terms of black rappers. So you've got like, you know, your Jay-Z's, your Kendrick Lamar's, um, you know, J. Cole's and even, you know, in popular culture recently now you've got, you know, Lil Baby, Gunner. So just kind of growing up, it's like I feel like music is one of those fields where it kind of it allows you to kind of be creative. So, you know, whether that's speaking your mind or, you know, kind of retelling your experiences in life, it just allows the individual to just have that sense of freedom and just kind of express themselves. So I feel like in that kind of field, um, you know, a lot of black men and black women tend to gravitate towards that because it's like, it's just a relief, if that makes sense. So it's just like, you know, kind of speaking your mind or speaking your truth. Um, so yeah, in terms of sport, I'd say growing up, like me, myself as well, like, and, you know, a few of my friends, like we all had ambitions of, you know, becoming footballers and whatnot. So we'd look up, I support Arsenal personally. So I'd look at, um, you know, the Ian Wrights, um, Thierry Henry's, you know, Car News, um, Will Tours and just kind of say that, okay, like the way they just kind of express themselves and it's like they enjoyed their football so not even just football as well like kind of when you look at basketball so you've got you know Michael Jordan Kobe Bryant rest his soul um you know nowadays you've got LeBron James as well it's just different you know even in golf for example you've got Tiger Woods so in different types of sports naturally you'd kind of gravitate to a black male or the black female that's you know excelling so even tennis I forgot to mention uh Serena Williams you'd always kind of think okay like this person is really excelling within an individual kind of sport but at the same time they're enjoying and genuinely being themselves so just kind of growing up myself I'm just thinking like you know music sports and even entertainment as well like comedy films you know you've got Denzel Washington Kevin Hart for example in comedy people like that where you just think that they're genuinely in they're genuinely in different spheres but then they're genuinely being themselves and it's just that sense of growing up you're thinking I need to get my education done but at the same time this may not be my purpose it may not be my passion but when I'm seeing you know these different you know role models um in music sport and entertainment you're thinking okay that could be something that I could aspire to as well but I would say mentally um it did kind of affect me as well because kind of I'll say leaving year six kind of going into year seven it was just the case and yeah just kind of even going through secondary school as well it's like you'd have these aspirations but it's a sense of you're aspiring to be someone else but you don't really know who you are as a person by that stage so it was kind of hard to say that okay like for example I want to be like Thierry Henry whereas I don't really know myself I'm not really that good at football I'd like to think I am but I'm not that good at football you know like you just start to kind of doubt yourself and then you start thinking internally and kind of thinking okay like who am I as a person who do I really who, who do I really want to be for you know in the long term so it's just like that would kind of be the mental battle you'd kind of go through growing up like free secondary school so you also spoke off air about the discrimination and stereotyping even some of these leaders in sport and music and face when they get there you mentioned Man United player Paul Pogba specifically just elaborate on that for me and, and what impact does that have on them you and your mental health and the wider conversation? Yeah, so I just feel like, um, you know, when you're just invested in, you know, something like football, um, you just kind of naturally gravitate towards, you know, news articles, um, newspapers as well. And then it's like, just with, you know, Pogba, and I'm sure there's other examples as well, but it just gives you this impression that black footballers tend to be kind of scapegoated as well. You're just kind of thinking, why is it that there's always that kind of 
scapegoating or kind of feeling that okay this person is portrayed in such a negative light whereas you know there's other you know players for example that commit you know certain kind of crimes outside of you know football hours whether that's binging in you know nightclubs or you know turning up late for training and certain misdemeanors where you think okay surely that should be picked upon and kind of criticizing you know the tabloids or you know podcast episodes for example or kind of news spaces but with you know when it comes to black players as well I feel like there's always a sense of you know vilification so you know Paul Pogba um it's always this kind of running theme of I don't know if it's like unconscious bias or what it is against him, for example. And we saw it, you know, a few months ago and even last year with Raheem Sterling as well. So it's like, naturally, when you're looking at these players who are playing for, you know, the big clubs, you know, in the UK and across Europe, and you're thinking the amount of kind of pressure they have to play for that type of club, let alone, you know, the vilification, you know, and the the abuses they sometimes subject to as well, you're thinking... How does that kind of affect the younger generations in terms of, you know, aspiring to be footballers and thinking, okay, say, for example, like I end up with a contract at, you know, one of these top clubs. Am I going to then be subject to these certain, you know, unconscious biases or, you know, abuses as well? So it just it just makes you wonder, like, what the under underlying concerns or kind of issues are with kind of black players, you know, excelling at, you know, football or, you know, whether that's other sports as well in the wider conversation. So we talked about your ambitions for the future earlier, Brian. I think it's also important to note that whilst you may have a passion for tackling issues of racial injustice in law and, and perhaps you might choose that as your practice, it might not be the path you go down and black lawyers shouldn't be pigeonholed into practicing law solely around their racial identity. Why is that an important distinction and point to make? I just think it's a case of, like I said kind of previously as well, like in terms of changing the narrative, I don't, like it depends on the lawyer themselves. Like, for example, like if somebody wants to, you know, practice whether that's, you know, criminal law or, you know, family law or whatever it is, I do feel like in terms of having that freedom to kind of say, okay, look, like I'm actually good at this field, but I shouldn't be just practicing in this type of specialism because, you know, I don't know, maybe this type of field, um, you know, maybe affects a certain race more or, you know, this particular field is something that people would assume that I would naturally gravitate towards and, you know, things like that. So it's like, for example, myself, like I'm interested, you know, because I've got a passion in criminal justice and criminal law, but for the most part, I don't want kind of people to look at me as, you know, a black male and think, okay, like he's aspiring, he's aspiring to be, you know, a barrister or like a judge. He's naturally going to go, you know, into like criminal justice fields or, you know, immigration, for example, because it just kind of creates that kind of sense of, is this like another unconscious bias where you feel like there's that connection between me and potentially criminality or, you know, immigration, you know, things like that, where it's just like, it shouldn't be the case. It should be a case of, if I'm passionate about, I don't know, public law or, you know, private law or anything like that, like any particular law field, um, it shouldn't be based upon, you know, my race. And it shouldn't be a case of, okay, like, I'm shoehorned into a particular kind of filter, you know, uh, prop up diversity quotas. I saw a tweet you wrote recently, Brian, about having this desire to get involved in mentoring the next generation of black lawyers when you achieve a certain level of success. Why is that important to you? And and if there are any young black men or women listening to this pod and are considering a career in law, what message or advice would you give them from your experience? Yeah, so um, it's important for me because um, just kind of reflecting back on my own journey until I probably came across LinkedIn, um, I didn't really have any kind of mentors or kind of examples that, you know, I could kind of look up to and kind of say, okay, like, this is the person that, you know, I can learn from. This is the type of person where, you know, I can kind of mold myself into in terms of, 
you know, maybe I can reach out to them, I can maybe network or have like a personal kind of conversation through the emails. Whereas when I look back at my kind of journey now and kind of building for the future, um, I do want to kind of create a path where, you know, the next generation of, you know, black male and black female lawyers can say, okay, like this person has gone through, you know, the journey. He's quite kind of accessible as well. And just kind of like, you know, the mistakes I've made along my journey, I can kind of, you know, teach teach them and say, okay, look, like I did this, you know, it didn't work out. Um, I did this that may have worked out for me, but just to kind of give a sense of, you know, someone to look up to, someone to look up to, sorry, and someone to kind of, you know, just kind of feel like they're relatable to, to me. So it's like, just to kind of, you know, looking back, just kind of give that sense of, okay, you know, you are embarking on, you know, a pretty long journey, but, um, you know, if you ever need help or advice or, you know, just kind of coaching from, you know, week to week or month to month, um, someone that you can access and, you know, just kind of give that sense of, you know, you can get to this position, you can aspire to be, you know, to go beyond, you know, the narratives that society creates for you and whatnot. So, yeah, I feel like it's important in that sense to, you know, kind of mentor and give back to future generations. Um, in terms of advice or any messages, um, I'd just say stay focused and stay dedicated. But at the same time, as you go along the process, kind of understand who you are becoming as the person as well because a lot of the times when it comes to you know applying for you know training contracts for example or paralegal positions pro bono work I feel like people tend to do this thing where it's like they're trying to shoehorn themselves into the position but they don't really know who they are as a person or as an individual before they get to that stage so I feel like as you go along you know different stages of your education or just different stages in life as well um just be mindful of like the person who you want to become and kind of mold an identity for yourself because I do feel like it's important you know as you go along to you know grow as a person and kind of be mindful of the different stages but at the same time once you get to you know your end goal or you know whatever you kind of see as like the glory at the end of the process um just to also be mindful that the person who you were, you know, five, ten years ago isn't necessarily the person you are today. And the person who you are today isn't necessarily the same person you're going to be in the next, you know, five, ten years as well. So just also kind of realize that you're always redefining yourself, but just be always aware that you're kind of molding yourself as you go along and hopefully for the better as well. So. We talked about Brian, the aspiring lawyer and barrister. Now I want to delve a little bit deeper and talk about your own journey, Brian. So firstly, tell me a bit about your early life, teenage years, the place you grew up and whether looking back, there were any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint. You know, who's the Brian we meet here? Yeah, it's one of those ones where, um, you know, kind of looking back, kind of growing up, um, most of kind of my, my vivid kind of memories, just kind of growing up throughout, you know, primary school, um you know secondary school as well like I was quite you know always quite kind of chubby um just really kind of self-conscious in terms of how I looked on the outside so um I grew up in North London I went to school in um, North London as well um in terms of secondary school I went to you know St Ignatius College so you know it's a decent decent school decent area but um just in terms of kind of growing up like it was just a case of throughout primary school you know I remember there was kind of you know, just kind of being kind of self-conscious and just not really kind of being able to express myself at times because I just felt like, oh, people were kind of, you know, looking at me because of my weight or, you know, sometimes I'd get, you know, bullied by, you know, children during playtime. And then when it came to lessons, like, I just remember that I was quite, you know, reserved, quite shy. 
pretty much even in secondary school as well like it was literally the same thing in terms of I went to an all-boys school but even then it was like yeah just because I was just kind of really kind of self-conscious about my outer outer appearance um it just really kind of affected me in terms of I internalized a lot of you know the pains and kind of um different things people would say to me and just be like okay like you know just keep it in keep it in and not really speak to anyone so yeah it was just quite if anything, quite a mental struggle throughout those kind of early stages. And when we chatted on the phone, you also spoke about sort of temptations during those teenage years and having the strength of character not to go down the wrong path. You know, if you couldn't without sort of revealing too many details or perhaps incriminating yourself, just tell me what you meant by that. Yes, it was just a case of in secondary school, um, you know, naturally as you go through the years, so like year seven, you know, up until year 11 and sixth form, because it was kind of like an all boys school, so everybody's kind of filled with this kind of sense of masculinity. You've got all the different kind of cliques and groups and whatnot. And reflecting back on my own experience, I didn't really feel like I had, I had friends. Like, don't get me wrong. I had like people I'd play, you know, football with or hang out with during lunch times and whatnot. And, you know, your classroom friends and everything like that. But I didn't really feel like I had any sense of like belonging I didn't really feel like I belonged in you know the people who played football I didn't really feel like I belonged in you know sometimes I'd kind of I remember like if it's not if I'm not in the library or if I've not um had my lunch um I do this thing where I used to kind of drift so I'll drift just aimlessly throughout the playground or kind of like throughout the building and I just be like I just really wanted the time to go quickly until the end of the day so I can just be like okay look like the day's finished I can go home now and you know play on my xbox or whatnot but during school it was just a case of because i didn't really know who i was and i was kind of self-conscious as well i just didn't really kind of want to fall into the wrong kind of groups of friends because of that sense of belonging and kind of you know just needing company i didn't really want to kind of go you know just befriend someone because okay they gave me kind of that false sense of security so even though i was kind of walking around you know aimlessly and just bumping in from group to group um, i was still kind of conscious of not kind of going down you know the wrong kind of path or kind of leading myself astray so that idea you talked about about socially drifting um really spoke to me brian and that's something i used to do when i was getting bullied at school um i went to quite a rough school as well and um i i definitely got that whole feeling of i don't want to be around people that were bullying me so i'm going to therefore kind of walk about and see what i can do to basically pass the time um something that you also came to talk about brian is this added mental dimension and pressure that comes with being black alongside teenage adolescents now this is something i obviously can't understand but i can certainly listen to and try and empathize with just explain to listeners what you meant by this and and also how you said you essentially had to learn what it is to be black because the school curriculum did not teach you that yeah, so it was just a case of, I just remember kind of growing up as well, like naturally you'd see like the different types of black boys or black kind of females as well and kind of the different types of groups that they would hang around, hang about with or kind of socialise with or just a different path. So, you know, sometimes you'd have, you know, the black male or the black female who's academically smart. So they're just, they're being kind of champion to go down, you know, further studies and whatnot. Or you'd have like, you know, the sports groups where they're just kind of clicky in terms of athletics or, you know, football, you know, week in, week out. But in terms of myself, I think it, it just kind of goes back to that sense of not having an idea of who I was as a person. So even when I was just kind of going through the years in secondary school, like history lessons as well, like I was really, I really enjoyed history because I was academically good at it. But reflecting on when they were kind of teaching about kind of blackness and just that sense of black identity, just kind of looking back at, we used to watch like slave films and kind of be taught about like abolitionist kind of slave traders and um, the Ku Klux Klan. And it was just a sense of, acknowledging that this is what you know my ancestors went through but at the same time it's like 
just internalizing that kind of pain and you know struggle so for me it was just a case of I didn't really feel like I hated being black I just felt like I hated the way I was being taught to be black even though it was like okay I was self-conscious and everything like that but when it came to kind of my blackness and my identity in that regards I feel like the school was always kind of projecting this idea of like you know subconscious bias that black people are kind of inferior to you know other races and then it's a sense of I'm I'm kind of asking myself internally like why are they doing this but at the same time it's like when I'm in the lessons now I'm thinking okay because naturally I'm self-conscious I'm shy I don't really want to ask these questions but in my mind I'm thinking are the teachers not aware of what they're teaching but at the same time how this could affect people around black men in this in this classroom so I'm thinking I'm always kind of keeping it in but I'm always asking myself questions but I didn't really have anybody to kind of ask in terms of maybe black teachers in the school um they were few and far between but at the same time I didn't really feel confident enough in kind of reaching out so it was just a case of internalizing a lot and not really looking back on it and thinking why was this why was this allowed essentially Mm, I, can, I get what you're saying. And, and it sounds like from what you're saying to me that your school taught a lot about, you know, slavery and, you know, black pain, but they didn't do enough to, to teach about, you know, black kings and black queens and the, the positive aspects of, of blackness and identity that you probably wanted to see. And there's obviously Black History Month, which takes place in the UK in November. Um, however, I think in order for black history education to progress, not just amongst black people, but white people as well. You said to me that um, you feel like it's it's probably had its day. Just explain your reasoning behind that to listeners and, and why you feel it should happen. As someone might think that it's a bit of a controversial statement to make without doing their research, I should I should say. So, yeah, it's just one of those ones where just even in terms of Black History Month itself, like I always I used to just really hate it because it was like we have 12 months in the year, but then you want to dedicate the one month to celebrate in black history and even then it was just a case of the individuals or figures that you know often celebrate is you know Martin Luther King um his you know I have a dream speech Malcolm X and whatnot and don't get me wrong like they are each you know individuals to be revered and you know well respected but you have 11 months throughout the rest of the year and throughout not even just history but just kind of looking back at the whole kind of secondary school experience. So, you know, sometimes whether that's kind of people going into detention or disruptions in the class and whatnot, it was just a case of black boys kind of who were trying to grow up to be black men. We were always kind of portrayed in negative lights. And it was just a case of there should be a lot more being done to kind of to change that narrative. But at the same time, be mindful that, okay, because I went to like quite a kind of mixed school. So in terms of there was a lot of kind of different races. So you had white boys, black boys, Asian boys and everything like that as well. But anytime like, you know, throughout the rest of the year, if it was not Black History Month, like there's often this underlying, I don't know what to call it, but I just felt like there should be a lot more to kind of teach that sense of equality at the bare minimum because you know all of us are well I would like to think that all of the boys in our secondary school we had aspirations of you know being successful in whatever field we wanted to to be successful in but at the same time the curriculum you know some of the teachers they were just really teaching us the bare minimum and it was just kind of frustrating going through the years and thinking I could do more I could ask more questions but I wasn't really getting that support or being met you know even halfway by the so-called kind of system or you know the teachers who were apparently meant to have my best interest at heart so we get to university now and you told me that during this period where a lot of us are learning about ourselves and and probably making some ridiculously stupid mistakes I know I did you felt there was a whole other layer of challenge to contend with as a black man that no one prepared you for and you were forced to navigate what did you mean by that and and how did that impact you and your mental health yeah so just in terms of 
entering uni and kind of going through those three years for me and me personally it was a kind of a sense of the opportunity to kind of redefine myself so you know throughout secondary school I was often kind of bullied because of my weight and just you know how I looked on the outside like I said before um, I didn't really have a sense of belonging or I didn't really feel like I knew who I was as a person so you know when university came around now it was just that opportunity to kind of venture out and kind of explore who I am as a person but at the same time um, learn more about who the person I want to become, you know, at the end of this kind of journey and whatnot. So whether that's, you know, speaking to different types of people, um, reading new books and whatnot, just kind of that opportunity to learn, you know, learn more about my identity, essentially. But um, in terms of like my mental health, like I didn't, I feel like uni was just one of those ones where it's like, as much as it seemed exciting and, you know, all the thrills of, you know, nights out, clubbing, you know, turning up to lectures and seminars, like hungover and whatnot, just the intensity of you know the workload and just it just felt like it was passing me by but then it's a tough one because it's like I'm I'm reflecting back on my uni experience and I'm thinking I enjoyed it but the three years just kind of passed me by but I remember like in the individual years so you know first year was it wasn't the toughest but um, I remember like when it came to like the back end of second year and third year mentally like I was really struggling because I just felt like I'm getting to this thing of oh, I'm going to graduate soon I'm going to you know graduate with a degree but I didn't really know who I was so it was just a case of trying to live the experience but at the same time find that balance between okay like I need to keep mentally all right but at the same time not you know not jeopardizing my health or whatnot just for the sake of enjoying the experience so it was just it was just a constant mental battle like throughout the month so particularly like the second year and third year as well of just trying to find that balance between applying yourself in lectures and seminars but at the same time you know enjoying time with your friends or enjoying like I said before like creating that identity for yourself whereas yeah just a mesh of different things going on but I didn't really always feel like I was in control of it. I get you I get you I completely get you and I think for me uni was the best time of my life but I also had some of the worst ever mental health experiences during it It was a bit of a weird juxtaposition I think we're often trying to discover ourselves but we're kind of struggling along the way with that one challenge that is probably part of what you described is this idea of code switching now for the listeners who haven't heard that phrase before just tell them what it is whether you've had to do it yourself and what effect it has on you and other members of the black community when they have been forced or have been in, well in some in some cases perhaps even encouraged to practice it yeah so in terms of code switching um for me like in i remember this vividly as well like in um my first year of my history to undergraduate degree yeah, I was the only black male in three or four of my seminars throughout the year. And I was just like, the room was predominantly like white kind of males, white females, um, a few Asian males, a few Asian females. But I was the only kind of, you know, essentially black person in the in the room. And I was just a case of, in seminars, naturally, you'd have discussions and, you know, you'd have talks and whatnot. But over the years, I started to kind of realise that because it was just a recurring thing of, OK, I'm just the only black person in the room naturally I'm thinking to myself okay I need to change the way I speak or I need to change the way I carry myself in these you know different spaces because naturally I'm over I have this thing where it's like back in the days um, you know when I kind of first entered uni I tend to kind of have overcomplicate things or kind of think too deeply into you know what do people kind of 
think about me? How are people kind of thinking, how does he speak? How does he come across? So I felt like I didn't really want to play up to any narratives or stereotypes that people may have. So I just, I often had this kind of sense of, okay, I need to kind of speak in a certain way. I need to kind of carry myself a certain way. Um, At some point, I don't know why, but I felt like I needed to dress a certain way as well. And just even, you know, during my master's as well and like, on my current course as well, it was just a case of switching to kind of almost assimilate into the environment I was in. I'm kind of more privy to it now and kind of making a conscious effort not to do that. But just in the early years of my history undergraduate and sometimes across my master's as well, if I was the only like maybe amongst the only few black people in the in the seminar groups or lectures, um, I just feel like because I don't want to kind of stand out, I just felt that need of assimilating or kind of trying to fit in, you know, essentially. And it was just a case of, yeah, don't know really why I needed to do that. But as the years went on, just kind of understanding why did I need to do that? Was it a case of, you know, like I said, kind of wary of how people would kind of see me? Or was it a case of just me being thinking too deeply into things or just being too anxious about, you know, my own kind of insecurities? Your family environment is also something you were you were keen to talk about, Brian, and the traumas and experiences that you had whilst growing up now if you felt comfortable just tell me a bit about what these traumas involved and and how they shaped you into the person you are today you also said these traumas sort of created certain behaviors in you that you had to unlearn when you merged out of this environment just tell me what you meant by that and those experiences yeah so um yeah kind of like how we touched upon earlier on um you know i was really self-conscious about my weight throughout primary school i was bullied cast throughout lessons you know secondary school was pretty much the same in terms of um i remember like because I was quite overweight and whatnot, um, I particularly didn't like to do, I didn't really like kind of changing rooms because I felt like if I undressed, people would kind of look at me and kind of start calling me names and whatnot. But um, when it came to kind of lessons like PE or, you know, anything sports related, like I would just kind of say, you know, kind of feign an injury or kind of feign a note. So I'll just be like, okay, like, you know, faking um, my parents' signatures, faking a note and kind of trying to get excused from the lessons because I didn't want people to kind of look at me when I was changing or, you know, if it was a case of, you know, for example, I like football. Um, I played, you know, some rugby in secondary school as well, but I was still very self-conscious about and very insecure about my weight and how I looked on the outside. So um, sometimes I'd remember like I'd go into like one of the toilets, uh, quickly change before anybody, you know, realises that I was there for too long and whatnot. But um, just kind of growing up as well, um, you know, sometimes you, you know, kind of grow up and you just kind of internalise a lot. So you see like certain experiences, like whether that's, you know, arguments between your parents or just whatever you see on TV or outside. And you're just kind of questioning yourself and thinking, is this life? Is this the life that I'm in? But at the same time, where do I fit in all of this? And reflecting and kind of looking back on my own experiences, like I feel like, yeah, for a lot of, I'll say, yeah, throughout my whole secondary school, uni as well, I didn't really feel like I fit in. And, you know, sometimes I, I do remember, like, especially when it came to the back end of, especially my master's as well, you know, I, I remember I had this vivid conversation with one of my best friends. And at that point, I was just like, I've had enough. Like, I've just had enough because, you know, it's good to all have these ambitions of, yeah, I want to become, you know, like a barrister. I want to be rich. I want to, you know, marry and have kids. But I'd often do this thing where, I'd reflect backwards and just think, why? Like, why was I always kind of bullied or subject to, you know, these abuses? Like, why was it a case of, like, I wasn't the person who couldn't fit in? Like, I liked, you know, I like reading, I like playing sports, but why was it a case of I wasn't able to kind of, you know, like, enjoy myself, enjoy life? And I feel like looking back now, I feel like I've just, yeah, kind of over the past couple of years as well, like, I feel like I've got to a stage where I'm really 
you know, comfortable in my skin, you know, thanks to going to the gym and kind of, you know, doing boxing and whatnot. But I'm, I'm in a sense reliving my childhood. Like, I feel like, because I, I speak to people about this as well. And like, people are always saying like, there was probably more so like a disconnect between, I think some point in my secondary school up until now, where it's like, I didn't, I was just kind of going through life in terms of I'm taking all these abuses, I'm taking all these kind of, you know, experiences in, but I'm just internalizing all the pain. And I, I remember vividly as well, like when it came to, you know, missing kind of sports lessons or, or missing school, um, I'd come home and kind of just play my Xbox. Because for me, gaming was really like one of the things I was passionate about. So, you know, um, we used to play like FIFA Pro Clubs, um, you know, jump online, play Call of Duty. And like, I just felt happy. I felt like even though it was online, I felt like I was creating this sense of, you know, happiness. Like I enjoyed playing games, but then it's like, it'd come to like three or four in the morning. I'll still be on the Xbox, not realizing that I've got school the next day. And I'll, just that sense of, yeah, like I just felt like there's a lot of experiences that I've been through in life where, I've experienced them, but I didn't really consciously look back, you know, and reflect on them, or I didn't really kind of think, why was I subject to this? Or why did I have to go through this? And it was like, you know, sometimes, especially during my master's as well, I was just feeling really down and dusted. Like when it came to kind of trying to date people, you know, sometimes I felt like, yeah, I'm building kind of connections with women and whatnot. And then other times you're thinking, okay, like, you know, maybe she doesn't like me for for who I am really, or she doesn't really you know love me but I think it was more more so a case of I didn't really love myself so yeah it was just really hard to kind of at times look back and think why was I subject to you know all these kind of why did I have to see certain traumas why did I have to experience certain pain but at the same time why wasn't I able to kind of speak to someone about it why why did I feel like I had to keep everything in and I'm a lot more kind of confident in myself now like I'm a lot more kind of stronger in you know, my faith and who I am, who I am as a person and the identity I'm refining for myself. But it's a tough experience. But, you know, sometimes you just go kind of reflect and just kind of draw the line and say, OK, that person who you are in the past, who you, who you were in the past, sorry, um, isn't who you are today. And, you know, just kind of take the positives and move on from there. So what you said there, Brian, has so many commonalities with what, what I went through. And um, I just feel so sad that you had to go through it. Um, and that you had to kind of go through it alone. And, and that's something I, I, I had to do as well because I never felt like I could open up to anyone about it because of, you know, toxic masculinity and all the things that, that you'd spoken about. And I also had um, problems with my weight when I was a child. So I, com- I completely get what you're going through when it comes to that. I saw a tweet that you made. Um, I think it must it might have been a couple months ago where you also said you want, you, you, you know, you had sort of suicidal thoughts about during you know during this period um would would that be accurate to say and and if you if you could just talk to me about how they manifested and also on a positive note how you got out of it and what what you learned from it about yourself yeah so um yeah just in terms that was literally like throughout my masters kind of 2017 2018 I didn't really feel like I enjoyed life I didn't really feel like I loved myself I didn't really enjoy at that time, I didn't really enjoy my education. Yeah, I was just trying to think of just kind of even looking back now and just in the past as well. Um, there was really a few things that I could really say, okay, like I'm really into this. Like at that stage, like I was, I was really kind of growing out of gaming. Um, I liked the gym, but it was just kind of like a mental release in the morning. And then afterwards, it was like, okay, I've got the rest of the day. But one of the things I really noticed was that I tend to enjoy myself when I was kind of drinking with friends. So whether that's, you know, pre-drinking, cocktails and whatnot, I tend to feel like 
okay, like I feel kind of free. I feel like this sense of I can be who I want to be on the inside. But the thing with that is that sometimes like I tolerate a certain amount of alcohol thinking, yeah, yeah, I can enjoy myself. I can be free. But then it's like the come down from that is like the next day you're just thinking, what is this? But then at the same time, sometimes I'd remember that after like nights out with friends or clubbing and whatnot or drinking, you know, cocktails, the next day, well, yeah, it got to a point where it was like, the next two or three days, like my heart rate would just like slow down. It had this kind of weird thing, weird effect on my mind because I just feel a lot more kind of open minded and thinking I'd feel like I want to reflect on things. But then I'd feel like I need to get that experience again. Some would say that was seems addictive. But I remember in the moments I just felt free. I just really enjoyed that freedom of like being tipsy or being kind of, you know, waved and just thinking I'm not really kind of thinking about what other people are thinking of me or how I'm coming across. I'm just here to enjoy myself. But I just remember like after that I'd be thinking physically I'm feeling really bad but at the same time there's more to life I need to kind of get to grips of why do I keep doing this to myself like why do I keep feeling like I need to drink to enjoy life and that's when um, I'd say 2018 2000 yeah probably early 2018 mid 2018 um, I started doing going for like counseling sessions therapy as well and just kind of speaking to more people about my life and just kind of being able to kind of voice why I internalize you know a lot of the pain I experienced why I wasn't able to kind of open up to people and just getting more perspectives because sometimes it's like you'd internalize all the pain and then you're thinking okay naturally like you know you're thinking time is the healer in sense of over time you'd forget about it but then every time they would come to they would come to points where it's like um you know I enjoy going to music concerts but I remember one time I went to a little Uzi Vert concert and then one of his songs like I really liked it but then I was speaking to my counselor about it, and then he was like repeat the lyrics so I was repeating the lyrics to him while I was sober and then he was asking he was telling me to explain the lyrics and I was like okay this this doesn't really sound like a good lyric it doesn't really sound like a good song but I remember when I was like tipsy or you know drinking spirits like I'd literally sing that song off the you know top of my head and I'm just thinking back like that mentally like when you're when you're reciting certain songs or when you're kind of seeing certain experiences it really has a mental effect on you but that kind of shapes your subconscious mind One thing I was keen to talk to you about, Brian, and I guess it's something which has exploded onto everyone's conscience right now, is racism and its relationship with mental health. Before we talk about the issues going on in the world and how they've kind of magnified everyone's level of awareness, just tell me a bit about what experiences you've had of racism and how that's impacted your mental health and perhaps your worldview as well. Yeah, so, yeah, kind of growing up, I didn't really experience like, overtly you know in terms of racism like it wasn't anything overt in terms of you know anybody kind of slandering me or kind of abusing me it was more kind of really com- like covert types of you know racism so you know sometimes um you go on the bus and then it's like you'd sit next to somebody and then they would get up and move or you know you'd be in a particular space and you're the only kind of black male or you know black person in the room but people are kind of looking in looking at you or it's you know, really kind of uneasy. I do remember there was one time where I went to a football game um, with my dad and just kind of walking up to the stadium, there was just a few of the fans that, well, from a few of the fans from the other team, they would look at us and just look at me with disgust. And it was just like, just really insidious kind of, yeah, just uncomfortableness, that sense of you shouldn't really be here or, you know, you don't deserve to be here kind of thing. But in terms of, you know, just kind of how it affects the mental health, it just makes you question that how did this all start? But at the same time why don't people care like why is it a case of only is it 
after you know the unfortunate event with you know George Floyd resting rest his soul that more people are being conscious towards racism why is it that for so many kind of centuries that this has been you know an ideology that's manifested itself but at the same time essentially being allowed to kind of grow and develop without being you know without people being held really accountable so it just makes you question that is this going to be something that keeps going on you know long before I'm gone or you know for the future generations so it's just it's really frustrating but at the same time it's really mentally draining to kind of keep seeing traumatic experiences and kind of keep seeing you know injustices across the world and thinking just based off the color of this you know based off the color of my skin like you know somebody in this world doesn't like me what you just said there um at the end of your 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 answer um really builds on my next question brian which is something that's getting more attention now thankfully which is the link between post-traumatic stress disorder or ptsd and its relationship with incidents of racism and and its impact on the black community just tell me a bit about that relationship you know why it should be explored in more detail and how it manifests itself in society and individuals yeah so in terms of ptsd um i do feel like it's a big thing within today's society because especially with social media platforms like you know twitter your facebook's your instagram um i feel like the accessibility of different kind of experiences and different kind of news articles videos pictures like i'm really kind of mindful of like the filters that are being placed on these platforms like i said like someone could just wake up you could see somebody being you know murdered or you know assaulted you know somebody being vilified and it's literally at the tip of your finger but i'm just really mindful that a lot of us you know as black men and black women we're all we're seeing these you know different experiences and we're seeing these different you know types of images these types of types of videos but they're really manifesting themselves in our subconscious mind me personally, like, I feel really frustrated. At times I feel angry as well, but I've learned to kind of get space and kind of take myself away from, you know, these environments because the more I'm seeing it, the more I'm kind of internalizing a lot of kind of pain. And it's like, I'm just myself, but I'm just thinking like, you know, not even like other people my age, but just the younger generations as well. Like, if this is something that is easily accessible to them at the ages of, well, let's just say like maybe 13, 14, or even younger, God only knows how they're going to carry themselves, you know, in 10, 15 years time with, you know, all those kind of experiences just being so vividly in their, you know, in their mind. So it's just a case of, I feel like it's really important that while everything, all of this is going on in the short term, we're really mindful and conscious about how this affects us in terms of not being subject to the continuous generational forms of trauma, but just acknowledging that you know though all of this is bad and you know we need to condemn it and call it out for what it is um we also do need to provide like a healthy balance we also do need to you know ensure that we protect our mental health and you know ensure that we're not passing on internalized pain to you know the younger generations whether that's our children you know just people in the future as well so it's just something that i feel like a lot more people not even just black people but a lot more you know people of different races as well need to be conscious of how this is affecting all sections of society, essentially. Let's just talk about, you know, George Floyd now and how all of what you've said just forms part of this moment we're seeing right now across the USA and, and, and other parts of the world, including the UK, because of the killing of George Floyd, a black man from Minneapolis in Minnesota at the hands of the police who had his knee on Mr. Floyd's neck for over 10 minutes. Now, that officer has been charged with murder um, of, of some degree. Um, firstly, Brian, you know, how did you react to the video if you did see it I mean I could only watch it for about 30 seconds before it it really really affected me and this large-scale civil unrest explode off the back of it are you seeing a sort of positivity in these protests is it is it helping sort of channel that grief and that pain and 
how do you think it's going to have an impact on, on on the black community's mental health going forward, either positively or negatively, depending on how this goes? Yeah, so um, initially um, I saw images and kind of short um, 10, you know, 10 to 20 second video um, clips of the video, but I haven't actually ever seen um, the full nine, 10 minutes. But my initial reactions was, it's, it's unjust, but it's another incident where a black man has been dehumanized in the sense of what I saw in terms of the police officer kneeling on George Floyd's neck is like, it's just a tough one because it's like, I don't see how that can be justified in that instance, but it just kind of sparked off another conversation in terms of this has just been a constant dehumanization, not not only of just black men, like I've seen it in the past as well, um, where I think it was a group of um, black, you know, children in America uh, they went to like a spring party or something like that. And then police officers came. And then one of the police officers had, I think his, I don't know if it was his knee or just his whole kind of force on the girl's back. And she was literally like on the floor. And I'm like, no level of, no act essentially can justify that level of force. But it just makes you think that this isn't just a one-off thing. And this is what I feel like some people don't really kind of understand because this has been going on for decades for centuries but you know some of us have internalized it some of us have just you know reacted you know whenever we can but I feel like now it's a sense of it's just enough because you know for years you're thinking all of this has been going on but now you're starting to question other types of you know other spheres in society so you're looking at you know social mobility barriers in in the workplace for example you're looking at racism within education you're looking at you know, healthcare and like, you know, just a different sex of society. And you're thinking, why is it that us as black people are always put at a disadvantage? Why is it that there's this sense of whether that's covert racism or overt racism, whatever you want to call it, it's still racism. But it just makes me think that a lot of people have just got to the point where we're fed up of just kind of seeing these things and not essentially having justice because I've spoken about this you know on other uh, media platforms as well and it's like when we look at justice it shouldn't be we shouldn't just look at justice as something that can be established within you know the criminal justice system or you know the legal system it's just a sense of justice throughout well justice essentially from the day you were born like as a black male and as a black female I feel like we're constantly put at disadvantages at different stages of you know as we go through life and it's like why is it only now that when I'm seeing people that are saying, oh, like, you know, um, they don't understand why so many people are protesting. They don't understand why, you know, the level of kind of protest we're seeing of this scale is only coming up now. It's just a sense of that's because either you've taken a colorblind approach or you just aren't making a conscious effort to look into something that, quite frankly, doesn't affect you. Because as a black person, I feel like a lot of us are taught to kind of conform to society conform to to fit in we don't want to kind of play up to like negative you know stereotypes or negative narratives but at the same time we are always constantly subject subject to so many traumas and experiences and it's like when you you know we relate it back to George Floyd um just kind of seeing the police officer's knee on his neck I'm thinking whatever it is you cannot justify that but at the same time what would make somebody feel like you have to kneel on their neck? There has to be something more insidious. There has to be something that's deep-rooted in that person's mind, let alone 
maybe other people's minds as well but it's like it's just got to a stage where it's like it's just enough and I feel like unfortunately George Floyd's you know murder god rest his soul like was that catalyst to kind of just spark you know the revolutions and the kind of protests we're seeing you know currently in the world but it's just yeah it's just kind of sad it's just really sad to kind of see that things like this are still going on now when even when I'm thinking about when I was studying history as well like back in the you know the 19th century even 17th century as well like this has been almost let's say 350 400 years of continuous dehumanization of black men black women and it's like why that's why we, that's why I feel like everyone now is just kind of really making a conscious effort to ask why has this been maintained throughout you know for essentially so many centuries COVID-19 is also something you know ridiculous that we're going through right now Brian and it's something which is disproportionately affecting um, black people and Asian people in particular from a from a personal perspective when you add this layer of vulnerability on that comes with just being who you are and how it can how a pandemic can affect you in a, in a in a greater way how does that affect your mental health and how have you seen it affect other black people in your community yeah so um in terms of you know just the whole pandemic and covid-19 itself i do remember off the top of my head there was a report that came out recently saying that black people and ethnic minorities are i think three to four more times likely to be you know affected or something along those lines um but just in terms of what we're going through now and just the mental aspect of that as well like with like as a black person i'm thinking okay if i'm more likely to be affected by this if i'm seeing you know people like me being killed by this virus i'm going to second think about you know whether that's going to work or going to meet my friends you know just the risks that come with this virus and it's just like throughout this whole lockdown you know, I've been able to kind of clear my head and kind of get space and whatnot. It just makes you think that, again, reinforcing that sense of why is it me? Why is it that, you know, people like me, why is it black men, black women have to be constantly the butt of, you know, the end of society? Why is it that we're always subject to like, even when we look at kind of healthcare systems and whatnot, the lack of research that goes, the lack of research that goes into kind of viruses or diseases that affect the black men and black women the lack of funding that goes into you know healthcare organizations or kind of you know centers that are looking to kind of expand the research why why is that the case like why is it that there's always a persistent barrier essentially from stopping black people essentially getting more information or transcending barriers that you know have over the years stopped a lot of people from you know pursuing their careers pursuing you know just enjoying life and it's just a case of it just makes you think it just gives you so many questions that you don't really feel like you can get answers to so that's literally one of the most frustrating things when it comes to like the mental aspect of dealing with this whole kind of pandemic and COVID-19 itself. Well I think that's all we've got time for on this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a massive thank you to Brian for being my special guest on this episode's pod. I hope this conversation has been eye-opening, educational, and enjoyable for you listeners. As always, thank you to all the vendors who tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give us a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends at work or colleagues about it, or if you're feeling very generous, write us a review on iTunes. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, it's always okay to dance.